Good morning, may it please the court, counsel. I'm Stephen Fiebiger on behalf of Ryan Larson. Over 30 years ago in Jadwin versus Minneapolis Star and Tribune, this court observed throughout history, personal reputation has been cherished as important and highly worthy of protection. With this principle in mind, I'm here to ask the court to reinstate and restore Mr. Larson's ability to, to sue for compensation and damages to his reputation caused by the defamatory statements published by Carol Levin and the St. Cloud Times. The Court of Appeals erroneously reversed the district court's post-trial order, granting judgment as a matter of law as to the defamatory nature and falsity of the eight statements <clears throat> that were submitted to the jury and the order for new trial on damages and negligence for those statements. The Court of Appeals also erroneously reversed the district court's post-trial order for a new trial on the three additional statements for defamation by implication. The Court of Appeals decision was based on an erroneous application of the fair and accurate reporting privilege, an improper extrapolation of the jury verdict on falsity to apply the privilege, misapplication of the law of falsity by implication, and defamation by implication, and an improper application of the incremental harm doctrine. Mr. Larson is asking the court to reverse the Court of Appeals and remand the case for a new trial consistent with the district court's post-trial order. Counsel, respondent argues in at least two places in uh, their briefing to our court that you have abandoned your exact words argument. Um, can you respond to that? Do you agree or disagree with their claim that you've abandoned that argument? I disagree with that, Your Honor. Um, that falls under the notion that the, the statements are defamatory on their face and under the doctrine of <clears throat> republication, a absent privilege, one who republishes statements uh, that are defamatory are equally as liable as if uh, they had published them originally. So we, we disagree with that argument. Counsel, what is your position about whether um, the media would have a privilege here, the, a fair and accurate privilege. Um, could it ever apply to a press conference called by police? What is your, what is your position about that? Your Honor, we, we don't think that there is a privilege here for a press conference or as the Court of Appeals held, a summary of statements made in the press conference. Um, and, and the privilege would attach uh, to the point of the fact of arrest and the arrest charge, but it doesn't apply before the case uh, is under judicial control. And I think the cases are clear about that. So is it your position then that, that because arrest and charge are fairly encompassed within a judicial proceeding, that the fair and accurate reporting privilege covers arrest and charge, but nothing else? Yes, under, under Moreno and Section 611 of the restatement, that's consistent with uh, the law in uh, both of those authorities. But isn't there a, a valid public purpose in having the privilege apply in the context of, I mean, what if law enforcement wants the, public, the public's help in investigating a, a crime? Don't we want 
in that situation the, to incent the media to report if law enforcement is saying we need help, anybody with information should call the tip line or whatever the information is there? I mean, shouldn't the privilege cover that situation? No, I, I don't think it should. I, I think we certainly want help uh, where it's needed for, for public safety and getting the word out. But, but the privilege applies when uh, there's been an arrest or an arrest charge or the case is under judicial control. Um, the law that's evolved in this area <clears throat> uh, supports that. And we have examples, say, in the Minnesota Rules of uh, Professional Conduct, where prosecutors and law enforcement are prohibited from making extrajudicial statements that might uh, substantially prejudice a uh, jury trial in a criminal matter. Counsel, but... Um I'm a little puzzled because in Moreno, we recognize the fair report privilege and it had nothing to do with an arrest or charge there. So, I mean, our court has already expanded it beyond cases where arrests or charges have taken place. There was just a member of the public saying, a police officer is dealing drugs out of his, out of his squad car. Yes, Your Honor, I agree with that um, in Moreno, the court looked at the, the big picture in terms of applying the privilege to an official proceeding or an official action. And that's where the privilege uh, was appropriate in Moreno because the statements uh, alleged to be defamatory about Officer Moreno took place in a city council meeting. And Moreno extended the privilege to the official proceeding that encompassed city council meetings. So it's, it's consistent <clears throat> for the privilege to apply to official proceedings, which, which it does. And, and that's, that's the issue here as to whether- But, but counsel, how about, I thought you, your position had conceded that if they had confined, if the law enforcement and then the press had confined their statements to what had happened publicly about the arrest, the fair privilege report should apply, right? So. So if there's a press conference that talks only about the facts of arrest, you're not saying the press can't report that, right? Right. So, so in some ways you would be saying to this court, you can recognize the fair report privilege in, in the context of law enforcement press conferences, but the problem here is it just went beyond uh, what was the facts of the press release and the more, most importantly, the jail log, right? The jail log is, is, is a problem here because the police arrested your client for, um, for murder. And that was just, that, everything about that was public information, his name, where he's being held and the charge he was being held on, <coughs> the potential charge he was being held on. Right, and, and I think that's consistent with uh, Moreno and it's section 611 of the restatement and comment H, which <clears throat> um, limits the privilege for uh, law enforcement uh, officers, uh, prosecutors, complaining witnesses and witnesses uh, to where they can't uh, talk about the facts of the case or evidence expected to be given in the case before judicial control uh, uh, is exercised. So when they go beyond the privileged uh, pieces of the, the official proceedings, such as the arrest, 
the jail log. Um, that uh, is not entitled to the privilege. And that's, that's what happened here. Council, let's take a look at the press release that was issued. I wanna ask you about the press release. It says in the third paragraph, Larson was booked into the Stearns County Jail on murder charges early this morning. Now, if a press outlet reports that the uh, Stearns County Sheriff's Office and the BCA said Larson was booked into the jail on murder charges early this morning, is that defamation? Technically, yes, because he wasn't booked on, or he was booked on murder charges, but he wasn't charged with murder. It, it could be defamation by implication if it implies that there are facts that exist to support the charge of murder. And here they were. So uh, a law-abiding conscientious news outlet should not report that sentence, that, that the BCA and the Stearns County Sheriff said that in their press release? I don't think the, the media is entitled to a privilege for statements that wouldn't be privileged for the law enforcement. And, and that's where the, the restatement covers those types of uh, statements where law enforcement makes uh, statements outside of the, the official document or the, the arrest itself um, and gives evidence uh, that might be presented in the case or talks about facts of the case that haven't come up yet because the case isn't in court. Um, so the media doesn't get a better privilege than would the uh, law enforcement. Well, let's, let's say that I, for whatever reason, have uh, come in, uh, acquired a copy of this press release and I go home and I say to my wife, you're not gonna believe, this is really something. The BCA and Stearns County Sheriff say Larson was booked into the jail on murder charges early this morning. Have I just committed defamation? Absent a privilege, republication of a defamatory statement is, is the same as if uh, you made the original statement. So yes. It, it could be construed as defamation by implication. Well, by you're, you're not proposing some different test for me talking to my wife than a reporter uh, covering a press conference, are you? Not at all. So if it's defamatory for the reporter, then I suppose it's defamatory for me to say that also, right? I think it could be. Well, is yes. it? What's your position? Okay. Isn't that why there are media organizations who have a policy that they don't, they don't release the names of suspects? That's correct. And, and that's the problem with releasing the the information that was disseminated here before charges are filed and the case under judicial control because he didn't do it. He wasn't the one that committed the murder. And so the, the need to disseminate information by the media is outweighed by uh, the private person's right to sue for compensation when uh, the def defamation is, is published. And that's what happened here. Council, what if the rule of law is that the privilege applies if the media is covering information that is public under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act or it's an open meeting under the open meeting law? I think if it's an official proceeding or official meeting, it, it would be privileged. 
and I guess what I'm suggesting is to give legs to that term, official proceeding, we would look to what the legislature has already determined is public. So there's a whole host of government data that's public under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act, and there are a bunch of meetings that by state statute have to be open to the public. So I'm just, I understand that this is, this is probably beyond how this case was, was briefed, but we have to write a rule of law. And I'm just wondering if what your reaction is to that rule of law, so that this fair reporting privilege would cover, um, the, would apply if the media is reporting on public information under the Data Practices Act or under the Open Media Law. I think the, the privilege would apply to information presented at an official public meeting. So to that extent, if it falls under an official meeting that's called, right, right. I guess, I guess that's the best answer I can uh, offer up. Well, and we don't really know how that would apply here. We don't really know, I suppose, whether the information, uh, I mean, we could maybe find out, but um, whether the information here said at the press conference was public information under the Data Practices Act. Well, but that raises an interesting point, Your Honor, in that- Council, police reports are public, is that correct? That's correct, and that, that was the point I was going to raise, is the, the reports, as I understand it, would have been protected by the Data Practices Act as an ongoing criminal investigation, so that information would not have been uh, disclosable. And I think uh, uh, Superintendent uh, Drew Evans touched on that in, in his testimony. What's troubling about this case to me, and maybe I should ask this question of opposing counsel and not you, is in the press conference, uh, the officers noted multiple times the preliminary nature of the investigation, and that doesn't appear anywhere in these media accounts, I don't think. That's correct, Your Honor. And, and that goes really to the issue of whether the statements were substantially accurate or if it went afoul of the standards set in Moreno that the publications uh, added additional contextual material not part of the original proceeding, this press conference that conveyed a defamatory impression and commented on the integrity and veracity of Mr. Larson as the killer. And uh, the publications in the, the newscast at six and 10 on CARE 11 and also in uh, the articles in the St. Cloud Times went way beyond anything that was said at the news conference uh, the news conference, and, and it's better to see it in the, the video form than reading the transcript, but I think it's clear from the news conference that uh, the law enforcement officials were emphasizing that it is a preliminary and an early investigation, and it's active and ongoing. There were questions uh, raised by reporters about details of the, uh, the crime, and repeatedly, Superintendent Evans would say, we just can't answer that. That's an active and ongoing investigation. What, um, what do you do with the fact that the jury found that, now I'm gonna get this wrong, I think, but that's, that the statements were not false, I guess. Is that is that right? Okay. <laughs> so the jury made a finding that these, at least the eight of the statements, if I'm correct, were not false. What do we, what do you do with that? That's correct. We. 
we brought the motion for judgment as a matter of law on the falsity issue. The jury found all eight statements were defamatory. So here we have somewhat of a, a competing uh, finding there with the statements being found defamatory, but not false. And that's where we look at the definition of falsity that was not uh, correct in our view. And please, I wanted you to get to that, but before that, what was the jury finding? Maybe that was, would be a better way to state. Were they finding that what was reported was not false, or were they, I, I mean, what was the jury, what was before the jury? Was the issue of fair reporting before the jury, or was the issue of whether these statements were true or false before the jury? The jury was asked to find whether the eight statements that were submitted were false. There was no question asked uh, pertaining to whether the fair report privilege applied, whether the fair, fair report privilege was abused. And, and that's where we get into all these different competing uh, definitions of what is abuse of the privilege. And that never came up at the trial, and the jury didn't answer that in the falsity question. What but counsel, how do we know that when the statements were quoted verbatim and they have police say, for example, investigators say, and as I understand it, that's how, I don't know who was trial counsel, but that's how the case was presented, that there were kind of two theories. One was they didn't accurately, the press didn't accurately quote the press conference. And then the other theory was this poor gentleman did not do this. He's not the, he's, you know, that would go to the underlying truth. Um, and the juries, which did the jury decide in your view? First of all, is it correct you, pre you presented both theories to the jury? Yes, at, at trial. We also, um, and this goes back to Justice Thiessen's uh, inquiry, we specifically requested the jury instruction on falsity by implication that would have uh, instructed the jury that the statement or communication is also false if the implication is false. And, and that's, that's the problem here with, with uh, no answers on the uh, jury uh, responses to the falsity question because they didn't have an opportunity to answer that question and that, that was key in terms of uh, their no answer as well as... Well, Counsel, isn't, isn't what happened here, Judge Burke, um, in considering all of the evidence and in the post-trial motions, concluded that uh, the jury's verdict just isn't sustainable, that these eight statements, and we'll, I think the eight statements and the three statements that follow are in different categories, different buckets, but in that bucket of the, that you find those eight statements, um, the jury's verdict just wasn't sustainable, that those statements were in fact false and defamatory. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, were there motions made at the close of your case um, for judgment as a matter of law on that point? I mean, is this, is this the court reconsidering and concluding that it made an error there? Yes, we raised, uh, we brought a motion for judgment as, as a matter of law at the close of the evidence and then in our post-trial motion on, on the falsity uh, issue. And, and really there's no disputed facts as to, as to what happened and to what was said and that he wasn't the I mean, It seems to me, and this is a question perhaps more appropriate for opposing counsel, but it seems to me those, those two buckets are in a different position. With respect to the first bucket, 
there are statements there that um, I, I think what happened here is the district court said they're just clearly false. There's no, there's no dispute to them. There, there was no, um, there was no uh, evidence here of any shooting uh, that is attributable to the defendant, for example. Other statements that were made. The second bucket maybe is a little more debatable because um, the defamatory statements are a little less clear. That's the way I see the evidence. Am I seeing it wrong, or how, how would you respond to that? No, I, I don't think you're seeing it wrong. I, I would add to that, however, that um, as the district court found, and, and we argued in our post-trial motion that the court could and did find the statements were uh, uh, false by implication as a matter of law, that regardless, under any reasonable view of the, the evidence, the underlying implication that Mr. Larson killed Officer Decker was false. And, and there was no uh, two ways about that. And that really isn't uh, any different uh, at this point in the case. Counsel, so, you, you agree, of course, if the fair privilege report, the fair report privilege applies, then Moreno says you don't go to that underlying truth or falsity about whether he killed the officer. If the, if the report, if the fair and accurate reporting privilege applies, Moreno clearly says, doesn't it, that then you just look to see did, did the officers, I, I'm sorry, did the press accurately report what was said? And that included a fair abridgment of what was said, which to me sounds like a fair summary of what was said. I think that's a, a fair So I've got that of, right. Of I've Moreno. got that right. What I, what I would point out is that in Moreno, <clears throat> while the, the court found that the privilege attached, they found that the, the privilege attached the, to the official city council meeting, it didn't apply to the article that was in Moreno because there were so many additional contextual right. items and that took it out of... Uh, the privilege. And did it matter there that the plaintiff actually alleged that the entire article was defamatory? And and that I mean the factual situation was different because you had the you had the meeting and then over the course of 10 days uh, the the press did some investigation, talked to the police chief, heard about these rumors and that kind of thing. And there um, does it matter that here you you uh, the the plaintiff alleged specific statements and there in Moreno is that entire arg, uh, article and what happened in that 10 day span. Not at all. I, I think what, what we have to look at here is the context of uh, each of the publications, the, the six o'clock newscast, the, the 10 o'clock newscast, and then the, the articles in the, the newspaper, um, how, they, how they were presented. We can't just take the statements in isolation and uh, analyze them. Moreno, I think uh, I think everybody agrees about that. That the statement, the specific statement, should be um, should be considered in the context of the broadcast or the article in which it appeared. I think both sides agree to that, right? But the only question, I, I think, there's a a disagreement when it comes to the incremental harm privilege about whether you look to a specific just a specific broadcast as opposed to what occurred over the entire evening. I think, I think with respect to the incre incremental harm <clears throat> uh, 
issue. Could, could you just um, say, I, I think there is agreement that you place these statements, even though you've alleged certain statements, you place them in the context of whatever article or broadcast they appeared in, right? I mean, both sides agreed to that, right? Yes. Okay, and then now please go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, and it's set out in our brief in terms of this incremental harm doctrine. First of all, Minnesota hasn't applied it to a case like this involving private defamation claims. Um, and none of the cases have applied it to where there's more than one publication. So it, it's, you know, technically almost impossible to try to assess the harm from statements in one publication against statements in another publication where nobody knows who saw which ones and there's no evidence that uh, the same people saw the same publications. Um, the, the Court of, of, of Appeals um, made a comment about uh, Mr. Larson hadn't shown evidence of uh, additional harm from the three statements beyond the uh, statements in one through eight as they were characterized. But, but under the law of defamation, he's not required to prove that some uh, statements are more harmful than others. He just needs to show that uh, they, they tended to cause him harm in the community and to his reputation. It, well, just in other words, just as, those three statements should be judged on their own and not in reference to the other eight? Exactly, yes. Counsel, if I could, could just as kind of backing up maybe to, to first principles, but I want to make sure I'm clear, and I think it's maybe an extension of Justice Chudich's questions. Would you agree with the framing of the analysis that we have to do? I mean, I think as respondents frame it is, it's a two-part inquiry. So we ask first, does the privilege apply? And that question is a function of, is this, uh, you know, a public uh, uh, meeting where matters of public concern are, are being discussed? But, but the first question we ask is, does the privilege apply? And then if it, the answer to that is yes, then the next inquiry is, has that privilege been abused or been lost? And within that is the analysis of substantial accuracy, um, the gist of the, the matter, um, and also this idea from Marino of uh, whether or not any additional contextual material has been added. So I guess my first question is, is do you agree that that's the framework? Yes, okay. I, I do. And just to follow up, we think within that framework, even if the privilege attached, um, the, the privilege was abused by what happened here in the, in the uh, broadcast and the articles, um, and just, I touched on this in our- oh, Before in you our go brief. further, if, if, if the privilege attaches, and then again, I think this goes to the Chief's question about what, what's the rule that you would ask us to write? Because in your brief, you talk a lot about, well, this should apply to judicial proceedings or reoccurring meetings like judicial proceedings um, or meetings where there's some opportunity to rebut. But I don't see any of those themes or concepts coming out of Marino. And so I'm wondering two things. One, whether you have any case support for that. Um, and if not, help me with the parameters uh, of the rule as you see it. 
again, is it is it just meetings that are subject to the open meeting law? Uh, I, I'm still tr struggling with what the parameters of the rule might be, as you see it. Your Honor, and, and thank you, but I, I also want to back up just a, a step. I agree that would be the, the framework for the, the, the approach. I'm not agreeing that the news conference was an official proceeding, um, just, just to make that clear, but I, but I think that would be the, the framework. Um, we pointed out some um, uh, pieces that show up in Moreno that I think are helpful. <clears throat> and, and in the, some of the early cases, I think one goes back to 1908, this Nixon case, where, and Moreno supports this too, that for an official proceeding to be covered by the privilege, there needs to be uh, an opportunity for both sides to be heard, and, and that uh, isn't present at a, a news conference. You know, Mr. Larson couldn't have come into the news conference, he wasn't invited and, and given his side of the story. Um, the news conference uh, wasn't essential to the investigation or the administration of justice. If, if it didn't take place, uh, the investigation would have gone on anyways. Um, Council, I know your position is this news conference was not an official proceeding, but in your reply brief, you take it one step further and have a very interesting and I think almost breathtaking uh, headline, unscripted questions and answers in a press conference by law enforcement are not covered by the privilege. Um, how is a reporter supposed to know whether what the official has said is scripted or unscripted? Do you have to go up to the um, law enforcement official afterwards and say, um, say that that thing you just said, was it on your, in your notes? And if so, exactly what did your notes say? How does a reporter do that? Well, I think what happened here, Your Honor, uh, is an example of that. The, the law enforcement officials came out, they read their statements, and then they said, we'll open it up for questions. That's when it becomes- How, how does a reporter know that they're reading rather than, than saying something that's unscripted? I mean, you can, you can be reading and then put in a sentence that's not in your text. How, how's the reporter supposed to figure that out? I think by the questions and answers, they're part of the exchange that here the court gave uh, credence as part of the official proceeding. And, and that's, that's a real concern because there's no definition of the who, what, when, or why as to when it's an official proceeding and when it's not. Thank you, counsel. You have five you. minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Wells. May it please the court, counsel. This case goes to the very heart of the press's role in our society. It's reporting of actions, proceedings, of top officials in the executive branch of government. Here, the top law enforcement officials of the state, of a county, and of a city, who convened an official press conference expressly for the purpose of disseminating information to the public. Substantially accurate summaries. Council, what is the what are the bookends? I mean, you you would agree that recognizing the privilege here would is an expansion of Moreno. I, I would agree, Your Honor, that Moreno and Nixon, the other two cases that this court has decided on the issue, do not deal with this specific okay, issue. Okay, so I mean, what are the bookends? Any 
high-level government official calls a press conference? What, what about, say, the athletic director at University X calls a press conference and at the press conference reveals data about students that is private under state and federal law? Um, the media covers it because, after all, it's a press conference by a high-level government official talking about a matter of public concern. Does the privilege apply? Are, is the, the question that the court should ask, Your Honor, is, is this official authorized? Are they someone who um, speaks to the public, is authorized to speak to the, to the public? Um, have they called the meeting as, expressly to disseminate information to the public? In Marino, for How example, How does the Your press Honor, know that? I mean, to kind of the similar question to what Justice Lillehog was asking opposing counsel, how does the press make the determination that this particular public official is speaking of things that he's authorized to speak about? Because it seems like the rule you're drawing is that if they're not authorized, then the privilege wouldn't apply. Well, no, I think it's very clear. We don't have to worry about it when it's the top official of a particular agency. Well, what if they're saying things that they can't say, as, Justice, as the Chief Justice just said? It, but... The, the question is, are they, are they people who it's within their authority to speak to the public, not the content? This court has never gone to the, has never said that the application of the privilege depends on the content that's spoken at a meeting. Well, uh, and this is one of the things the that I think troubles me about 611. Um, and I think, and we don't have to reach the issue particularly in this case, but I think it speaks to how broadly we draw this. Because when I read it 611, it says, for the same reason, the privilege exists even though the publisher himself does not believe the defamatory words he reports are true. Right. So what the 611 says is you can report things you even know are false, and that seems to me to be incredibly problematic. So do you agree with that? I do, Your Honor. That's how, that's how the press holds government accountable. In other words, if it- The if thing that I gotta say, <laughs> and I'm sorry, but in this brief, and it's not your brief, but the Amici brief, where they talk about this case and then they talk about all this great stuff about Watergate, which is exactly the opposite of this case. You're not holding the, the, the in this case, the job that you were doing was not holding the government accountable. No argument about that, Your Honor. We, the, the, we, that is not this case. This case was the press's reportage of a meeting that was expressly called to disseminate information to the public, information that is un of unquestionable public importance. Well, then that's a, Counsel, another question I have, because I was watching the Golden Globes last night, and then NBC came on, the news came on after the Golden Globes was ended, and there was the first story was a story of a report of, I, I think it was a car accident and a hit and run, and it said that the woman came forward to the police and said, basically that I'm the person that, was, that did the hit and run, but we're not gonna report her name because we don't report the name of a suspect until there's an actual charge placed. And to help the public in this case, you could have just said there's someone that has been arrested here. That would have given enough information to the public to give them more comfort, right? Your Honor, that goes to my point about content, though. This court has, this court has never said that if a proceeding, an action, a meeting is covered by the privilege, that there are bits and pieces of, of the statement or action that are covered by the privilege, but not everything. For example, Your Honor, in Moreno, the concern was that there was a statement made by somebody who wasn't authorized to say anything. It was a private citizen who appeared before the city council. That was but, a public meeting. 
I mean, we, we do look at the content. We look at whether the information is public. And in Moreno, it was a public meeting. I mean, it was an open meeting. It was a meeting that, had, that the city council by state statute <coughs> had to have in a public setting. This was, pub this was public in every way that matters, Your Honor. The underlying Was all the purpose information public under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act at the time of the press conference? I, I don't have an answer for that, Your Honor. Well, don't we need to know that? No, you do not, Your Honor. Why wouldn't that be a be good bookend? Because the underlying purpose of the privilege, Your Honor, is to make known to the public things that the public would have seen or heard had they been there. This was live televised to, to people all over the state. There's no doubt about that. Council, does it, so, but, it, it sounds the, like it, I'm sorry, Chief, no, go ahead. It, it sounds like in answer to one of the Chief's earlier questions, it matters or we have to consider whether or not, what authority the person who's speaking or persons who are speaking have to speak. Is that a fair assessment of your position? What uh, well, they've Honor, been delegated? I think what, to, to fairly state what, I, what I'm trying to get across is, if, if it's a top official of an agency, they're authorized, there's no doubt that they're authorized to speak on behalf of the agency. So that's the issue that's, that's really the distinction, I think, that is made in subsection H of the restatement, where they're talking about the arresting off statements, informal statements by the arresting officer. Sections D and... What you have in mind, then, I, I often think of, and I'm sure other police departments do it too, but I frequently see the St. Paul Police Department do this where there's a crime or something has happened that is of public, in, great public interest, and they bring out, and again, I'm not sure what this officer's rank is, but presumably a higher ranking official, but the point is that I am assuming that he or she has been delegated the authority to speak on behalf of Chief Axtell, and they film it usually in front of the St. Paul Police Department headquarters over on Olive, and that officer talks about what they, is that a press conference? And is, is I guess I'm asking several questions. Is that a press conference? And do we need to know, or should are we assuming then that he or she is speaking on behalf of the chief? And think, is that enough? Well, I think, Your Honor, when it's a, when it, so in this court in Moreno and also in the restatement, talk specifically about the fact that um, where you have um, an, a, uh, an informal statement by a low-level officer, typically those are statements that are made on behalf of the agency, is made on behalf of the public affairs officer. So if that's the situation that Your Honor is talking about, a statement, a release of a statement to the media by a public affairs officer, then yes, that should be covered by the fair report privilege. But we don't have to worry about that here because we have the top officials. Well, I know, but, but we're, as you know, we're always looking down the road. We, as the chief said, we have to write a rule. And so it, it's not just about what happened here, but if we're going to extend, and you agreed and you say in your brief that this would be an extension of the privilege, we've not applied it in these contexts, what are the boundaries of that? The, well, what, 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 you write the rule for me. What the, does it the, say? I think the statement should be substantially accurate summaries or fair abridgments of statements at a, um, at a news conference or press release that is called by the agency should be subject to the fair report privilege. That, that is the statement that we would urge on this court. And under the rule that you've just given me uh, or given the court, um, how does the statement that police say, statement, uh, police say that the man identified as um, Ryan Larson ambushed Officer Decker and shot him twice. There's no evidence anywhere in that press conference 
that those two facts, shot him twice and ambushed him, occurred. So now we're talking about the substantial, the substantial truth prong, Your Honor, and, and that's just not right. I mean, it said the, the statements in the press conference were that Ryan Larson had been, had been booked for murder, um, the murder of Officer uh, Decker. Um, when uh, Superintendent Larson testified, he acknowledged that the press release uh, said that. Those were the statements that were in the, the, uh, the news conference itself. The police indicated that the murder was an ambush murder and that two shots had been fired uh, into, into Officer Decker. And there was also uh, twice uh, statements by law enforcement that they, were, that they had no reason to believe that anybody else was involved. So, uh, Your Honor, to say that those, that, um, to say or to suggest that that, that is not, uh, a, that a fair abridgment of that is not that police say Larson shot Decker is, it doesn't follow. And the jury in this case found exactly that. When the statements that were put to the jury were specifically the entire police say statements or the entire police believe statements, and they were asked whether those were substantially uh, substantially uh, true, whether the, the reverse formulation, whether they were false. Counsel, you know, and the, the answer other, was that they were not false. The other concern I had really was with the um, the additional contextual material that gets add, added here. And your opponent highlights in his brief uh, very well the numerous things that were, were added that clearly were not talked about at the press conference. And one that I remember in particular is the media also talked about Mr. Larson's prior run-ins with the, the police that he had been arrested or convicted, I think, of disorderly conduct and, and a number of other things. And that has the appearance of, just to be frank, just kind of trying to dirty him up a little bit. You know, it had nothing to do with what actually happened. And and so I, I guess I'm wondering here whether or not when you put all of that, those additional contextual material together, uh, whether or not even if you had the privilege, your client had the, the privilege in this instance, it wasn't abused and it, and it wasn't forfeited. Um, now, I know in, I found an interesting comment in Amiki's brief, they want us to overrule Moreno to that extent and kind of get rid of that whole additional contextual material prong. Um, I'm not sure whether you're advocating for that, but assuming it's there, because it is there, Moreno says it's there, what do we do with that? What do we do with all of the, this is the discussion about his prior criminal contact and all the, the enhancing of the videos and all of that that the media did here? Well, number one, Your Honor, what Marino is concerned about is the additional, additional defamatory contextual material. In other words, statements that were not made in the course of the um, in the course of the this, the city council meeting, um, but that were that were independently defamatory. That's how I believe. Uh, so I it doesn't matter then with respect to that's helpful. Thank you. So in your view, it would not matter that his prior criminal record was was discussed because that would be true. I guess true. is what you're saying. Yes, Your Honor. Council, it, was, council. it wasn't independently. There, there's no argument that it wasn't. was independently defamed. So so that that provision, additional contextual material, only applies to matters that are independently defamatory. Is what you're you're telling me? That's how that's how I believe. I, that's how. I read Marino. I think that's the right that's the right issue. 
the, I'm not sure exactly what additional contextual material you're referring to, Your Honor, but if it's merely the fact that they mentioned a disorderly conduct, which was, there was no doubt that that was true, it's hard to see how that changes the gist or sting. Well, I think counsel talked about the video packaging and a number of other things. I, I don't remember it all now. I don't have it in, my, in front of me, but um, he runs through a list of things, mainly in the reply brief, I think, is where I found it. Well, it was, I mean, um, I know the videos are, are of the broadcast, I believe, are, are before the court. I mean, it, frankly, it's pretty standard stuff. Um, it's, a, it's a picture of Mr. Larson, very brief snippets about his background, and then uh, statements about um, his role with respect to... But, Counsel, when I um, think about this, um, granted that there were statements made um, by law enforcement, and I don't necessarily see law enforcement statements as a problem, but when when taken out of context, um, and, and you're the person who is... It's your picture that's being flashed on the news that says that you have been arrested for murder, um, and it turns out that that is not true. It, you can't get, you can't put that horse back in the barn. And I would think that we, why clearly we have to have a balance because we want public to have information, um, and that's what the media is for. But I also have to think about the consequences to the individual who had their picture flashed because you can't ever get that back. And and here, the law enforcement said multiple times that it's still under investigation. And my understanding is that CARE 11's policy was that they don't release the name of the suspect until that individual has been charged. And it appears to me that they didn't follow their own policy here. So how can you help me out there? Yeah, let me address a couple of those points, Your Honor. So number one, first off, it's, it's important to recall that this press conference was live broadcast. So the public wasn't hearing anything from CARE 11 or from the St. Cloud Times that wasn't already in the live broadcast. Mr. Larson's name was was all over the place because of a live broadcast. Now, it may be that the plaintiff's position in this case is the media isn't even allowed to broadcast press conferences, which strikes me as really extraordinary. But I think it's important to remember that, the, the to use your honor's phrase, the horse was out of the barn when when the law enforcement held a televised press conference and issued a press release to every media organization in the state specifically identifying Mr. Larson as having been arrested for the murder of Officer Decker. But to be clear, I mean, your clients didn't get sued for defamation because they aired the press conference. They got sued for defamation because of the follow-up stories. They, your Honor, they... As I understand the position of the plaintiff here, if if they had simply broadcast completely accurately everything that had happened, if they had a verbatim transcript of um, the press conference, their view is this wasn't covered by the fair report privilege, and and Carol Evan would be entitled to. I, I understand. Yeah, I understand that, but I mean, I'm just talking about what what you your clients really got sued for here. It, well, two two. Things, as I understand it, is that they reported something that wasn't covered by the fair report privilege, according to the plaintiff, and then their argument is they reported it inaccurately. That's the that's the gist of the argument here, as I understand it. Counsel, let me change the facts a little bit. There was no press conference. Instead, exclusive to CARE 11 at 10 o'clock, um, Julie Nelson reports, CARE 11 has it based on a high-ranking source within the BCA, then investigators say 34-year-old Ryan Larson ambushed the officer, shooting him twice. Larson is in custody. So instead of a press conference, it's an exclusive, which stations love. 
um, would that would that reporting be covered by the fair report privilege? It's a it's a I would say it's a closer question in that um, in that circumstance, and I guess the question would be. Whether well, I know it's a closer what, question. What's, whether, what's well, your position on whether it's covered? If it's official action, then it's covered. In other words, we have we have comment D, and we have so a, a leak a leak from a high-ranking person in the BCA is official action. Could be, depends on the circumstances on which it was. Tell, it was tell me more. What circumstances would would uh, it depend on? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Was the hypothetical that it was a leak from somebody? Yeah, I mean it's an exclusive. I would say that's closer to what's what the subject in in um, comment H, but if it is official action, if it is official action, then it is covered under comment D, and so I would say that would be privileged. We don't have that here. Obviously. So even if the official, the high-ranking official, is is providing information, is violating the law, in in providing information that is private under state and or federal law, your position is that the media is still entitled to the privilege. If it's an official action, then yes, Your Honor, it's covered by D. It would not be covered by comment I, which is the public meeting uh, formulation of the privilege. But if it is official action, then, then, the answer, then the answer is yes. Why is it a bad rule of law to say it's only, the privilege only applies if the high-ranking official is, dis is discussing information that's public? under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act. I'm, I'm sorry, the question, why is that a bad why, why is that a bad rule? I mean, I'm looking for bookends here. It cannot be that any press conference called by any high level, I mean, that just cannot be the law, it seems to me. We need some bookends. So I'm wondering if the Data Practices Act doesn't provide a good bookend. Uh, well, Your Honor, I, I don't, there's nothing in the, in the prior formulations of this court that would suggest that, um, that the Data Practices Act is the is the bookend. Sure, there is Johnson versus Dirkswager. There, Your Honor, but in the fair report privilege context itself, there's nothing in, in the Moreno formulation or Nixon that would suggest that the court that that um, reporters have to run to the lawyers to figure out whether information that's being live brought. Well, in my experience, reporters in Minnesota know are pretty familiar with the Data Practices Act. Well, Your Honor, still, back to my point, there's nothing in, in this formula, court's formulation in Marino or in uh, or in Nixon that would suggest that result. And, and let me say, that would, that would upend Marino. Um, in other words, there was nothing about the Marino uh, case that suggested that the, um, that was, again, that's an open meeting law case. I mean, not to keep arguing with you about this, but that was an open meeting law case. I just think this court can take some comfort in the work that the legislature has already done here in, in, in deciding what's public and what's not public. So the media covers something that the statute already says is public, then why not have the privilege apply to that? Well, Your Honor, let, let, me, let me suggest this hypothetical as a reason why that's really just not a very good rule. So let's say, for example, that there is a uh, press conference called by, uh, by the head of the FBI or by the head of the BCA, the very top officials in law enforcement organizations, and they say that they are investigating serious allegations of sexual misconduct by a member of Congress or by a member of the legislature, and they name that person. And it's live broadcast. Is the press now to say, well, that might not be covered by the Data Practices Act, so we can't report it, even though everybody in the country has seen it because it's been live broadcast, and even though it's re the result of, or obviously impl implicates very, very serious um, uh, public concerns. The role of the press is not to determine or to pick content out 
of what the executive says in in the uh, in the conference. I wonder if the, you're not going too far, though. I mean, it, there are plenty of there, there are other protections the media would have in that situation. Um, New York Times versus Sullivan comes to mind. So, so it, it isn't as though the media is going to be sitting there with no protection at all should they decide to cover that FBI um, executive's press conference. Well, the question here is whether, as a matter of law, this privilege is going to protect the media. Right. It's a, it's a qualified privilege. And when public officials speak, Your Honor, the only way that the way that they're held accountable, the way that the, that the public finds out about officials and whether they've gone too far is if the press reports it. I think, it's, I think it would be important for the public to know that the police have gone too far. I mean, isn't that something that you want the public to know so that they can hold government officials accountable? That's the role of the press. Now look, here, we're not talking about that here. We're not talking about um, the, an accountability issue here. We're talking about an issue of extreme public importance, of importance to the people of Cold Spring about this particular murder and whether they were, should be afraid to send their kids to school or not the next day. And, but you didn't have to name the person to achieve that purpose. Your Honor, that gets back to my content argument. It's not up to the press to, to, to pick and choose when, when a matter is covered by the privilege, when an action or proceeding is covered by the privilege. This court has never said that the, that the media has to be the ones to determine which content gets reported and which content doesn't. You know, the concern, and, and I should point out- but, but that's actually what you do every day. I mean, you do, in this particular case, you determined which content is gonna be covered. You didn't but have to name the, you didn't have to name- That's the, a matter of editorial judgment, though, and not, and not the law. This court has never said, you don't get the privilege unless you pick and choose. And that, maybe that gets back to Justice um, McKegg's question um, about the policy or practice. Let me be clear, the St. Cloud Times policy was to report the names of people who were arrested, even though they hadn't been charged. Carol Levin's practice was that they generally didn't, but the policy was they generally didn't, subject to the discretion of the news director, which was exercised here by, by Jane Helmke, the news director, because of the, of the extreme importance of this, and because the, the law enforcement um, themselves had indicated that they had been so clear about what um, Mr. Larson's role was here. Well, and it's also a better story. I'm not going to. Well, I'm, that's really what editorial content goes to. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I particularly buy this, the First Amendment implications of that, because what you're doing by naming the person is you're making this a better story for your news, so people come and watch your news and read your newspapers. Well, I just, hopefully that's true of any story, Your Honor. And so, I mean, the concern in the concern in Nixon and in and in Marino was that you would be. Um, is that you had citizen, statements made by private citizens that you're potentially immunizing, could be libelous, and you're potentially immunizing because you hadn't had government, any sort of form of government control. But that's not the concern here. Here you have the government speaking, the government officials who were in charge of these agencies speaking about um, Mr. Larson and his role in the crime except for statements 9 through 11, which have nothing to do with the government. 
We do not contend that those are covered by the fair report privilege, but those are non-actionable, they're statements of opinion, um, and I think the court understands our incremental harm um, uh, doctrine. Does, counsel, does it make any difference if the reporting organization knows that what the public official is saying is just flat out false, that it's a lie? It, and it, when, let's say the public official is a serial, serial defamer of private citizens. Does that make any difference or does the privilege apply? No, Your Honor, it, it, it does. Um, I think the restatement is clear about this, that um, actual malice or negligence would go to the accuracy with which it's reported, but not whether the press knew that what he was saying was a lie. And let me give you an example why, Your Honor. Let's say we have a, an executive officer of the state, of the, of the federal government, who routinely lies when it comes to press conferences. Don't you want the press to report that? That's how that government official is held accountable. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Fiebiger, you have uh, five minutes for rebuttal. What do you make of the argument that you're, the rule that you're articulating, at least as to the first part of the framework, uh, means that the press couldn't even broadcast the press conference live? Is that, are you comfortable with that? I, I don't have a problem with the press uh, broadcasting a live uh, news conference. But by broadcasting it, don't they run into exactly the problems that, I mean, if they would have broadcast that on their newscast, wouldn't your client be in exactly the same position? No, I, I don't think you would, Your Honor, because uh, the uh, newscast, uh, gave a different impression than what happened at the But that, that, that's the second prong of the analysis. The first prong is whether this privilege applies to press conferences, right? And that's the first part of your argument, that it doesn't apply to press conferences. So what, how do you respond to this point that if it doesn't apply to press conferences, then the press really isn't a position? I mean, I guess they can run the risk that what is being said is defamatory, uh, but doesn't that, doesn't that kind of undermine your argument as to the first part of the framework? Uh, or do you think that the position should be that uh, they just shouldn't broadcast the press conference at all? I'm not, I'm not sure I, I really have an answer for that, whether they broadcast the, the press conference or not. I, I still think the press conference is not an official proceeding, um, like a, a court hearing, uh, for example. There's no opportunity uh, to be heard by anyone uh, who's the subject Council, of the if that's true, then how would law enforcement ever be able to actually get information out to the public? I, I think they, the press can, or the law enforcement can certainly hold a press conference and, and give information, but it doesn't make it an official proceeding for purposes of the fair report privilege. And, and I think one other point that is, is worth mentioning here is when the press uh, publishes a story as either the exact words or a summary of what they characterize as an official proceeding, they need to attribute uh, that official proceeding somewhere in the story. They need to say, this came from a press conference held by law enforcement in Cold Spring, you know, this morning. Um, otherwise, the viewer or the recipient of the information doesn't know that. And and that defeats the purpose of the of privilege because it's to disseminate information that occurred at an official proceeding or an official meeting. If that's not told in the context of the story, 
they, they have no idea that the source is from an official proceeding. And, th and that's what happened here. There was no attribution to the uh, press conference or the, the news release or the jail log as the official source of their stories. And, and for that reason, as well as the other ones we've mentioned, uh, the privilege shouldn't attach. Um, and, and I think that would fit in with this notion of, of bookends that uh, the Chief Justice uh, raised. There needs to be some attribution of the statements made to the official source or proceeding uh, to be entitled to the privilege. Uh, and that's, that's common sense, uh, more or less, because under the substantial accuracy test uh, in Jadwin that's in the briefs, the court is going to look at whether the gist of the statement is true, whether it produces the same effect on the mind of the recipient as the precise truth would have uh, uh, presented or produced. And if they don't know what the source of the information is, it's not going to do that. And so for that reason, we think that attribution is key to uh, the privilege in, in a case like this. Uh, one other uh, point I'd like to speak to is that I don't think the privilege is focused specifically on who speaks to the public. Uh, council uh, mentioned if a top official speaks, that should basically do it, as I understood the argument. But that wouldn't enable a top public official to disclose private data under the Data Practices Act uh, or disclose private data and make false statements about an individual under the Data Practices Act and be entitled to uh, the privilege in, in our view. Um, I see my time's running short, but we would ask that the district court order be reinstated and the Court of Appeals be reversed. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.